Goofsters, and welcome to the third in our 12-part podcast peek behind the scenes of the Disneyland Character Department, as told by two best friends that work there. This is the Two Goofs Podcast. I'm one half of your goofy podcasting duo, Adam, and broadcasting from a bunker located somewhere deep within the green hills of Toontown, it's Jeff. Yeah! Yes, episode three is finally here. We hope you all enjoyed episode two, covering our time in Disney University and early days on the job. Special thanks to loyal goofster at Illustrator Eric, who created some fantastic fan art based on Jeff's hilarious tale of being shamed by Br'er Bear during one of his first times in costume. You know, hilarious depending on your point of view. It's true. <laughs> you can see the sketch over at twogoofspodcast.com. We actually have a photo gallery there now, so some of the photos that we've been sharing that are exclusive from our personal archives now on the photo gallery at twogoofspodcast.com. But Eric, the illustrator, also has his own podcast called Mystery Movie Night. It's a podcast. It's also a game. Uh, but it's it's a fun little movie review show where at the end of it, they review several films and then they try to find out what is the connecting tissue between all these movies. So just something to look for. And while we're on the topic of other shows, Jeff and I recently released an episode of our other podcast, Sequel Quest, where we, along with fellow Disney enthusiast Mike Westfall, had a very in-depth conversation about Disney's cinematic history before pitching sequel ideas for Disney films both animated and live action. Jeff, what did you think about that experience? It was interesting. It was kind of different for us. Usually, we're picking up the same movie to come up with a sequel, but this time, each of us came up with two separate ones so we basically had six different movies we were pitching so that was an interesting conversation i mean like i you know i love talking about disney so disney fans hopefully will appreciate it and if you need another teaser donkey pirates you want to find out what that's all about oh that's right (laughs) (laughs) you can find sequel quest on itunes podbean stitcher spotify whatever your flavor of podcast delivery we are there finally we also hope you got a kick out of hearing a bonus episode of this show where we interviewed our gal pal and former pluto nikki lots of laughs and wild stories of that episode which you can find also on our new youtube page it's true again if you're not down with itunes pod bean or google play you can find the two goofs podcast on youtube it's easy to share it's easy to listen anywhere and you know please do share the podcast whether it's through social media or reviews on itunes you like to get formal there the more you know mouse ears we get on the show the bigger goof nation grows and the more fun we can all have sharing our stories from the parks and uh, speaking of stories it's time to open up the goof mailbag for a very special character moment This one comes from Karina, a very dedicated Disney mom. So, Jeff, take it away. All right, Karina writes this. When my oldest child was only nine months old, we took her to Disneyland for the first time. She absolutely loved all the characters. When we went to Mickey's house in Toontown, she walked her first steps to Mickey, then took the easier path to him by crawling. Mickey got on the floor and crawled with her. He made us feel like we were the only people in the park for those few moments. 
Wow. Her first steps were walking <laughs> towards Mickey. I mean, <laughs> Sorry, that's <Mom>. a story. <laughs> Mickey's got the goods. That's pretty special. It means so much, mostly to the parents, but still. It's that thing, too, that's really special about Toontown. And I mean, we've kind of mentioned this already a little bit, and I know Nikki mentioned it in the bonus episode, is that so often when you see a character at Disneyland, they're just swamped. And those moments are really few and far between and hard to get because of how many thousands of people there are at Disneyland. But for us characters, we love those moments. Being able to have just that one-on-one time where you can really make a special moment with a kid. I know those were always my favorite. So, getting into today's episode, this is one that we've been anticipating for a while because when we promised to give you a peek behind the curtain and really show you what being a character is about, that's what we're going to be discussing as we talk about a day in the life of a costume character at Disneyland. What really is involved? You know, the minutiae of your day daily routine as a Disney employee in the character department. A lot of things you may know about and some you might not have imagined and a lot of the fun that's even involved in in a routine, which maybe some people aren't always so excited about. (laughs) Yeah, well, and, and even that's the interesting thing, I think, about a day in the life is that a day in the life did vary pretty drastically based on the different shift that we were doing. Because there's not only different locations that you can be working at. I mean, you can be working in Toontown, you can be working in Town Square, you can be working... And they're all very different experiences and shifts and kind of the process that you go through. But some of that, and, and Adam and I were talking about it this week, that that I don't know if he was able to be as involved in this part of the process, was actually picking those shifts because the way that it would work uh, at least 20 years ago was that they would do a, I think it was a semi-annual draft. Twice a year, they would list everybody in your height range. So you would have, again, like the Mickey height range, the Pluto height range, and the Goofy height range. Uh, There's obviously other characters that, that we've talked about in each one of those height ranges. But you would be listed in your height range according to your seniority. So we had some people that had been in our department for 30 years, some people that had been in there for like two weeks. And one by one, they would either call you in or if you were working, you would call on the phone and they would have a list of all the potential shifts that you could choose from. So obviously, if you were the person with the most seniority, you could choose from any shift in the entire park and and handpick your schedule. But by the time it got down to a rookie, so like it sounds like Adam, your experience is it was kind of like, here's what's left. What do you want to do? <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, that the fact that I didn't hear anything about this just tells you how far down the list I was. And in fact, I, I because I had the two different tours of duty there, I was always a rookie i was never a veteran <laughs> even though i felt like it i was like well but I, between each side it's been like four or five years it was like well not really because i was gone for two in the middle so adam what would you say if you had to think about in those stints what would you say if you could have picked one shift that would have been your favorite shift what would it have been you know when i when i kind of dig deep and i say okay what is what was the most fun what was what gave you the most creative ability Honestly, my favorite place to do atmosphere work as a character where I could just wander was Toontown. 
just because it was the home of the tunes. Like, you could basically wander anywhere, especially on a slow day. You know, go over to Goofy's bounce house and say hello. Drop by Donald's boat, you know, Minnie's house even, play in her kitchen. And even, like, just the downtown area, I love doing bits, you know, pretending to get shocked at the electric company door or be confused by the talking mailbox. Just trying to create those moments for guests. Plus, if you came out of town hall to all that fanfare music, you know, it made you feel like a celebrity. So I know uh, in our bonus episode, you guys kind of trash Toontown that it's a, a rough gig. But for me, I always had the most fun there. Definitely spoken like a rookie. There it is, right there. <laughs> no, but you're right. I mean, there is. Well, and that's the other interesting thing, too, about picking a shift is that the different shifts mean different things. So, for example, if you were Mickey Height and you wanted to work in Toontown, that meant either you were going to work in Minnie's house. Minnie's house is a photo location, so you stand there, or you work in Mickey's house. You know, you're in another photo location and actually, you had different photo locations that you could choose from. Whereas Goofy, and I don't know if you remember, Adam, there's actually two different Toontown things that you could do. There is just the atmosphere where Goofy can just kind of wander, which, if you recall, I- I'm assuming you worked there during the peak of summer at some point. Oh, absolutely. I think both points, right? Yeah. <laughs> Toontown in summer is rough. There is no shade, and there's no place to hide. Like, you, you are in trouble, man. It is kind of about maneuvering the large masses of crowds. Because that's why they come to Toontown. They're looking for characters, and they see Goofy just standing there, and, oh my gosh, like, 30 people all of a sudden swarm you. But the other one was during Christmas time, they would change Toontown to be Christmassy, and they would have Santa Goofy. So then you, you didn't get to wander. Now all of a sudden you had a photo location where they would set up a... Big chair, yeah. You would dress up like Santa, but you were Goofy. And so then you would just sit in that chair all day long. So it was definitely a different sort of a thing. Well, so Jeff, so for you, what was your preferred shift then? What was the one you were angling for in this lottery based on seniority? So I went through a couple of different phases, but the biggest thing for me, and we've talked a little bit about this, is like kind of the the shift in the department while I was working there. When I got hired in, it might have been like a hundred or less people that were actually in the department. And again, today, it's probably up around three, four, five hundred by this point because of the two different parks and et cetera, et cetera. So because you had such a small group and you still had such a high turnover is that you kind of got this core group of maybe 30 or so veterans that had all been there at least five years. And to be honest, it was kind of a little clicky, but at least for me, I was like, oh man, they are the coolest people. If I could only be one of them. And the first time one of them actually knew my name, I was like, oh oh my goodness, like I'm one of them, I belong. (laughs) Yeah, so there was one shift that uh, had more veterans than anything, and it was the first shift at Goofy's Kitchen in the mornings. It was all like... The rookie in that shift had been there for 10 years. Like, that was the rookie. There was someone who had been there for 15. There was someone who had been there for 20. The person had been there for 30 years. That was his shift that he would always work. And so for me, it was always as a rookie that those shifts were never open. So the best you could hope for would be the B squad, which would be the <laughs> second unit. Uh, and, and I did that a bunch my rookie year. But then when I finally had an opportunity because the Goofy ended up transferring to a different area, when I finally had the opportunity to get that shift, I did for at least a year 
Monday through Friday, I was doing that shift 6.15 to 2.45. And well, and, and that's why it was so coveted, right? You're out by 3 in the afternoon, and you got a whole day left in an evening to yourself. So it literally doesn't take up you know your whole life to work an early shift at a restaurant character right. experience. I don't so. know that that's how college kids see it, though, because <laughs> working at 6.15 means you have to go to sleep at like 10.30, so we have an episode we'll be talking about Disney dining experiences. I have a, a pretty interesting lead in to an early morning shift that I'll be excited to share. But yeah, so that's the thing, right? Is if you were so lucky as to choose your shifts and really have that preference in your favor, then, you know, maybe you didn't feel so unsure about the weeks to come. But for some of us, it was a new and fresh experience every day as you started getting into the routine. And first part of your day, Maybe you're working a Goofy's Kitchen shift. Maybe it's 6.15. Maybe you're not getting there till you know, 8.30 or so. But that meant, remember, this is California. If you're working a later shift, you are fighting traffic. So you're still getting up two hours early just to try to make it. And for us, we only lived, you know, 20 miles away or whatever, but it still took forever to get there if you were trying to fight rush hour anywhere between 7 to 9.30 in the morning. That's a rough ride. But for me, I actually did not have a driver's license for the first few months of my employment at Disneyland. And I'm a late bloomer and Jeff will attest to having to give me many rides over the years. <laughs> even after high school. But what worked out for me was my dad's company owned the Anaheim Hilton down the street from Disneyland, and his office was there. So I would just commute with him in the mornings. We could take the carpool lane, and he would drop me off at the Harbor Boulevard employee gate. So this is a place that's just kind of got a little turn-in area. Where the buses drop, right? Yeah, where the buses would drop off, and then you could also pull up a car really quickly if it wasn't in the way of the buses and get out. So my dad would just kind of drop me at the curb. It was like, going to school still. It was kind of embarrassing. Uh, Eventually, I got a license and a car, so I then went on to fight for parking in the Cattell Avenue employee lot and rode the shuttle, which dropped me off at that same gate. But what I learned is it was always a good idea to get there like 45 minutes early to the parking lot in case the shuttle was running late, because you didn't always get leeway. Well, the shuttle was late. Well, you should have been there earlier, (laughs) you know, like the schedulers were not on your side. But Jeff, sounds like you often have had a different parking experience is that right yeah and it's interesting which which we've said multiple times california adventure changed a lot of the experience because I mean, one for those that go way back to the 80s where california adventure is right now used to be where the parking lot was you used to be able to park almost right up to the uh the front gate and it was Dumbo Lot or Sleepy Lot. They all had character names, yeah. Yeah, because now the main thing is, is as you know, if you've got a Disneyland, is that the main parking is the parking structure, which is located kind of over by downtown Disney, really. And then you park in the parking structure, and then you take that tram into the, the park. So for employees, like Adam said, the main employee parking lot, I would always hear it referred to as Clementine, because Clementine is technically the, the street off of Catella that it's located on. That's where the employee parking lot is. And like Adam said, that shuttle can sometimes, especially if it's early in the morning or if it's the rush time or like you got to wait in line and like, oh, it was just such a nightmare. So what they did was one, there is actually an executive parking structure for the Team Disney Anaheim, which is located over by the Team Disney Anaheim building out behind Toontown, but only executives are allowed to park there after 6 a.m. 
So for a long time, it, as long as I could get in that door, like at 5.59 a.m., especially for my <laughs> 6.15 shift, I could park in that structure. So then eventually they didn't like that because too many people were onto that. So then they added it where if you get there before, and I think they might have even extended it. It might have been a little bit later than six, but they would actually let you park on the first floor of the big parking structure. So that's what I would do. I would always park there because that way I don't actually need to take the tram to get into the main entrance because there's an employee entrance right there by Toontown. So I could just walk from my car to that and not have to deal with the shuttle. Yeah, and what we should mention, you know, as you get to your employee entrance, obviously you have to have your employee ID card. So you just kind of scan that, get yourself in. That's how they knew who you were. I never recall forgetting my card. I don't know if you did, Jeff. You're fairly responsible. Oh, no. Oh, you did? (laughs) God, I was 19 years old. We all forget it. Dude, I forgot so... And again, this is a testament, and I love 19-year-olds, don't get me wrong. My journey to get to a 6.15 shift is I had it timed to the minute, because I lived right down the street at an apartment in Anaheim with a couple of other roommates that all worked for Disney, is that I had it timed that if I left the house exactly on time, that I could get right to that parking lot by like 6.12, and I would would clock in at 6.14 every single time, so I'd be one minute early for work, and I had that down to a science. But as a 19-20, 21 year old there was at least two times that i forgot to wear shoes so uh i did definitely but the nice thing is and it's like they say in shawshank redemption whoever looks at a person's shoes so i literally would log in for my shift wearing nothing but socks and then when i log in there i had to work on the other side of the park so i would walk all the way across disneyland in my socks because I was going to get my character shoes at the end. Now, getting home afterwards, I hadn't really figured that part out. But, you know, one, one step at a time. That is wild. I never heard that story before. Barefoot through Disneyland. You heard a barefoot in the park? There it is. I have socks on. Now, this is the thing. So once you've clocked in, you got to make your journey, right? Now, for most park employees, there was like a costuming area where you would go and pick up your uniform. But for characters, very different situation. So we would have to report to what was called the headroom. Now, the headroom was like a locker room. It was located just behind Town Square, and that's where you would run into all your friends, find out where they were working that day, just kind of chit-chat a little bit. And the headroom was lined with character costume pieces, just shelves and pegs where the heads would rest, hence the headroom. And that's where you would pick it all up, put it in a black bag for transport to your assigned break room. But also... As Jeff alluded to, you would pick up some underclothes. You'd get your Zoo Crew t-shirt, which you know, had like pictures of the characters on it, some shorts, some bandanas, you know, for your head to soak up the sweat. And in my experience, at least, you always had to have one set to be wearing when you're working <laughs> and then one set to change into while your sweaty clothes dried out, hopefully, which pretty much never happened. But Jeff, what were your experiences in the headroom? Well, one thing I would say, not to get too much in detail, but Adam is a sweaty fellow. So getting a pair of undergarments, (laughs) and don't get me wrong, like there are definitely times where, yeah, depending on the costume, the nice thing to be perfectly honest, most goofy costumes breathed really, I don't think I sweat, especially after a couple of years of working there, I don't think I would sweat at all wearing a goofy costume. Oh yeah, goofy's the best. Yeah, Goofy, it was, was, because like just, almost just like wearing clothes. Exactly. Now, I mean, Adam talked about the beast, which he does not have much experience in apparently. (laughs) But for me, it was the genie. The genie would be like, oh my gosh, it was sopping wet. 
But so for me, and again, not not only were you supposed to, you had to. You're not going to wear your regular street clothes. And in fact, they didn't want you to wear your regular street clothes underneath the costumes. One, because they'd get all sweaty and gross. But two, also, you know, if there's any inks or dyes or something that's going to bleed into the, as you're sweating, it's going to bleed into the costume. Like, obviously, these are very, very expensive costumes, so you don't want to do that. But nonetheless, one of the things that I saw those veterans on that Goofy's Kitchen A-Shift do is that they had their own sweat clothes that they would bring so that they wouldn't have to wear. Because that's the other part, too, is the undergarments that they would give you. Like, everybody wore those, and they would toss them into a giant vat, and then they would wash them all with, like, industrial bleach, and then you'd get them back. So, not that they were gross. I'm sure they were sterile and everything, but, like... No thanks. It was like hotel towels, basically. <laughs> it was, so but true. I think I think we need to clarify too, Jeff, because you keep saying undergarments. These were like gym clothes. Oh, it yeah. was like high school we, gym right. outfit that exactly. you're wearing. We, yeah. th- and that's a great example. That's exactly they were that same material of short. We called them undergarments. We, we called them. <laughs> now one thing to keep in mind is that Toontown had its own headroom because right. you were working on the other side of the park. And they had so many characters. And, th- and that's the other part, too, is not only they had so many characters. Mickey, for example, if you've ever been to Toontown, one of the rooms you go into has Mickey Mouse Sorcerer's Apprentice, which has a different hat on. One of the rooms you go in has Mickey Mouse from Steamboat Willie, who is black and white. So there are actually different costumes all for the same area. Yeah, and California Adventure at the time was so new, it did not have its own headroom. I don't know if it does now, because I'm sure they have a lot more characters there. But if you were working at California Adventure or one of the hotels, after you collected your costume, put it in your little black bag, you would get picked up by a shuttle and just throw your costume in the back of the shuttle, and they would drive you out to your location. But those drivers were always fun guys and gals that would take you around. They, they all had their own specific, like, attitudes. They were real characters. I remember uh-huh. there's this one guy this morning. He's like, guys, you, you're going to have to speak up a little bit. I was at an ACDC concert last night. It's the loudest thing I've ever heard, you know? So Before we move off the headroom, one more thing I, I want to reference back to that is that when you actually walked into, and I didn't work as much in Toontown as I did in the main one, but when you walked in, uh, there was actually the costume department, the employees that were there, and that's actually who you came up to. As I recall it, there's this foyer area, and then there's a desk, and you would come up and you would ask them for like a specific, hey, I'm doing Goofy in Frontierland, and they would go and they would find that costume and they would bring it to you. But the other thing is, the biggest part of the costume is the headpiece itself. We call it the head. Uh, you can call it the mask or whatever you want. And these are probably ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollar pieces because that's really where they put the most effort and stuff like that. And for the most part, not only are they heavy, but once you did it long enough, you could also recognize there is definitely a difference. They all might look the same, but they do not feel the same because they would have maybe 30 goofy heads back there. And you would definitely determine, like, at least for me, like I knew number 57 was my head. Like that was the one I liked the way that it felt on my head. I liked the way that it didn't slip around a whole lot and stuff like that. So I would usually the night before I would put a little tag on it that would say save for Jeff. And then the headroom people, they would actually put that one aside in the morning. So I would show up and like, oh, here's my head right there. Unless somebody else decided that they were going to ignore my tag and take it anyway. My understanding was that for the most part, 
the people working, you know, the costume desk did not want you back there. But a lot of times <laughs> the veterans, again, had that preference. They could go get their own stuff for themselves. But if, if you were pretty new, it was kind of like, no, hey, where are you going? No, no, no. Right. What do you need? I'll get it for you. But well, you know, they knew who to look for. It'd be like, all right, you're good. Yeah, and the, some of that I'm sure is true. But one, and that's the benefit of getting there at 615 in the morning is that we're the only ones there. So that it's a little bit more loose. They just showed up to work. If you show up at nine and there's 40 people in there, like, no, 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 no. You stay over on your side. Characters will go get it for you. And like, and that's what I would do sometimes, especially if it was that, hey, can you go see if Head 57 is back there? And they would go and they would look for that. So once you got your costume piece and you got it in your black bag, threw it in the van, you headed out to your assigned break area. So you were going to get ready to go out on set. And if you were working at Town Square, you would just walk over there. But pretty much everywhere else, to my recollection, you essentially had to take a van. And usually you would arrive at your break room. I always feel like it was like 15 minutes before you had to go on set. So you're pretty much getting dressed and getting ready to get out as soon as you arrive. And the standard procedure for going on set, as it's called, meaning going out into the park and interacting with the guests, was you had 30 minutes out in the park and then 30 minutes on break, essentially to cool off, which is a pretty sweet deal if you think about it, because technically you're only really working half the hours you're getting paid for. Uh, I don't know what other jobs have that kind of uh, benefit, but I, I always felt like, wow, this is a, a pretty sweet deal. Not only is it fun, but you know, you get a little break time. And so you were getting dressed and ready before your double came back. So again, for those who maybe don't understand exactly how it works, you go out for 30 minutes, and then when you come back, there's another person that takes your place and goes out for 30 minutes in the identical costume, usually. Sometimes you have alternating characters, but most of the time it was the same character. So it would just be like if you were Br'er Bear in Critter Country. Like, what's like we talked about didn't always happen, but once it did, is that if you were Br'er Bear in Critter Country, probably didn't have a double. People were not that desperate to see Br'er Bear. So instead, <laughs> you would have an atmosphere set, an atmosphere, which means you're just kind of roaming the countryside. And technically, those are supposed to be 35 minutes. So you're supposed to do a 35-minute set with a 25-minute break, 35, 25, 35, 25. Because, yeah, and that was the critique that we would get from a lot of non-entertainment personnel that would complain about how many breaks we got. I would like to point out the fact that that was actually OSHA, the employee, like, government safety people. Like, they were the ones that said, hey, like, you can't keep them in that sort of a contained, heated, high-pressure environment for longer than 30 minutes so it, it's not just like hey this is an easy job it's also like a, it would be a health concern and especially that's the thing too if you remember we did actually have what we called codes so we had code 90 code 95 and code oh, 100 right. depending on what yeah. the temperature was once it hit 90 degrees outside then all shifts were shortened to 30 minutes and they distributed power aid all of us got power aid we very much appreciated that code 95 all sets went down to 25 minutes so you would do 25 and then a 10 minute break and then your double would do 25 and then if you had a double and then code 100 everything went down to 20 minutes so some of that, again, is not just because we had an easy job, but is actually the, the health concerns. What I always thought was interesting, it was kind of funny to me, the, the whole double situation, because essentially you have two different crews of characters working, not simultaneously, but switching places, yet you rarely interacted, because maybe you had like two or three minutes between going out that you'd see your double take their head off, or right. you know, the, the Mickey or whoever is there with you. And you know, so Jeff and I were doubles 
probably only like, you know, two or three times at Goofy's Kitchen, I think. It was a pretty uh, rare occurrence. You got to be the B team? The glory <laughs> of the B team? Yeah. That, yep. that is right. So, you know... <laughs> But but I always just thought that was interesting. Is like there's a lot of people occupying the break rooms, but just at different times. But going on set and having your break and all of that, I was curious for you, Jeff. What did you do during your break time? So so what what? How did you <laughs> fill the, those 25 minutes or however long? Yeah. Well, it is interesting. Is that one part? And that's 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 some of the veteran rookie, like some of the things that you kind of learn is that technically part of your break time is the like care for the costume is that you're not supposed to just take off your costume and leave it in a heap. You're supposed to take it off. You're supposed to hang it up. You're supposed to do, which let's be honest, like not all of us did, but we were supposed <laughs> to do that. And then the same thing is that, and that's even like, like Adam, you talked about that two or three minutes of, of in between time that was not supposed to happen. The moment you came in, your double was supposed to be ready to go right away. Like that was, but you know, uh, come on, we're, we're 20, 20 something year old. So we're, we're, we're not always great about that. And we would get in trouble or at least get, you know, talk to you about doing that. But so that's a part of it. The funny thing was, especially as a younger person with a 6.15 a.m. shift, you were technically not allowed to sleep during your break. And which is the weird thing. It's, it's not technically like a legal break because a legal break by the state of California or whatever, you would be able to go off property. You would be able to like, it's your time. Like they can't tell you what to do. So it wasn't technically that. You weren't allowed to go off property. You weren't allowed to sleep. You weren't allowed to do whatever. So I definitely learned the art of semi-consciousness. So I would be <laughs> on the couch with my eyes closed, but I, I, I would be aware enough that if a supervisor or whatever wore in, they'd be like, you asleep, Jeff? Nope, just resting my eyes. Like I had that, I had that down that I, I was a very light sleeper. Uh, um, and not yeah. only that, so that you would be able, like, you at least had one person that would be on the lookout for, like, the clock or whatever, so that you didn't, because that was the problem. That's why you couldn't sleep, is because people would oversleep their break time, and then that would be problematic. Yeah, now, I, I know I spent most of my time, because, again, we're college kids, so I did a lot of studying. You know, I was just trying to get a few extra pieces of my, my college uh, work done. In addition to, I was in a very creative mode at the time, so I was like, oh, I'm writing a song. I'd be, like, singing to myself under my breath this new tune I'd come up with or I'd be drawing up some you know comic book character that I imagined I would develop someday into something big you know so I, I was always kind of doing my own little creative projects on my breaks I wasn't probably as social as a lot of the people were but I feel like the break room itself really is a, a social area in a lot of cases so we're going to get into this and I know Jeff has been anxious to really get into the details of break rooms since we started the show. I mean, there's a real hierarchy and a real preference, I know, in Jeff's mind. Mm. Um, so we're going to get into that. But I wanted to mention that it seemed to me, and Jeff, you tell me if you agree, that most of the break rooms at Disneyland felt like they were afterthoughts. They were just a space that was eventually set aside for characters to change in, you know, to cool off in. Because, you know, usually the setup for most of them was you had one or two couches, you had a curtained off area if you were lucky for changing your clothes, you had a TV in a lot of cases, you had head pegs. 
and then you had blowers, which were basically these pipes that had air that shot up. And so if you were lucky, again, you would have a place to put your head on so it could cool off. If there was not a lot of people in there, you'd put your gloves on the pipe to help them dry off too. But that was like a real luxury. Uh, <laughs> and if you did that, a lot of people would give you the stink eye if they were looking for a place to put their stuff. But sure. it, it felt like you were always vying for space to put your sweaty costume pieces. Like we mentioned, they rarely did a cold, wet gloves were my biggest pet peeve because they were all up your arm and it was just like every time they'd been sitting for 20 minutes and then you put them back on and you're just like oh like it just felt so gross and the, the sweaty wetness you would think oh no it's nice it's cool it's cooling me off no, no not on no, my arms that's, that's not what i'm up to <laughs> so jeff what were you looking for as an amenity in a break room like mm. what what really set it apart from others yeah well i think you're right and i, I think that is that one interesting thing I, and i'm not i don't want to speak for any of the other employees at Disneyland, but it is that weird thing that the character department is separate from really all the other employees there because the break rooms, all the other employees in the entire park have the same break room except the characters. The characters have their own separate break room, which for us made sense because, like Adam said, we had costumes that needed to be cleaned. We had all that sort of stuff like that. We were sweaty and gross and you don't want to sit next to somebody or something like that. We were not as connected as far as employees are concerned. So for me, like, I don't know, it was always kind of weird that you're right, Adam, most of our break rooms, except for Toontown for some reason, most of our break rooms had couches, uh, which were great. I mean, like, you're, you're just out physically exerting yourself so to be able to relax. But a bunch of sweaty and gross 20-year-olds sitting on these couches. Like, that is not, like, that's gross. Dude. It was like a frat house is oh. what it ended up being, yeah. Uh, well, and that was always the thing. You could always tell the veterans because the veterans never sat on those couches. They would always have, like, our friend Michael, which we'll talk about at some point, he would always grab a chair and he would be sitting somewhere else. Because that's the other part, too. And if you guys know any 20-year-olds, and I was 20 and I love 20-year-olds, but let's be honest, like, our bathing habits are not always the greatest. And sometimes I'm all sweaty. Sweaty, so I'm going to change out of these sweaty clothes. Sometimes it's like, nah, I'll just be sweaty and I'll just sit down on this couch and, and whatever. Gross. Really gross. So Yeah, just to jump off your comment there, Jeff, is Toontown had the most spacious and well-designed break area because it had benches that were like, I don't know how you explain it. They were kind of like waffle yeah, metal they were like benches. Park benches. Yeah, so they would breathe, you know, and then they but they weren't comfortable because they were hard. Right. There was a dining area, there was again its own separate headroom, and then it had a locker room. And I, you know, I might as well use this opportunity to share this particular story behind the scenes at Disneyland. Crime at Disneyland. So just real quick, I had a gig before I started working as Goofy at Disneyland playing Santa Claus for a rich family's Christmas party every year from about my junior year on. They had seen me in this play that Jeff and I were in together called The Man Who Came to Dinner, which oh. was basically me talking for two hours as an old fat man in a wheelchair with a white beard and white hair and everything and this family had come to see it so they said oh you'd be a great santa claus again i was much heavier back then and so they every year they would rent me a costume i'd come walk around their party for two hours with a sack of ornaments handed out to their guests blah 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 they paid very well it was kind of fun to be in a mansion and be like oh this is how the other half lives so 
my last year doing that, I was now working at Disneyland. And so it's December. I, I had worked that night and then the next morning come in and I still had the money they'd paid me in my wallet. I think it was like a hundred bucks, you know, just for an evening's work. And so I had that. And I, I think I must have been bragging about it to somebody. You know, that's where I learned, you know, when you got a wad of cash, you don't, you don't spread that news around. But anyway, so there are lockers in Toontown, but they always tell you, bring a lock. Well, I didn't bring a lock. I just put my backpack in the locker, went out on set, and then I came back and it was time for my lunch. I went and got my back and I was like, oh, my money was gone. My wallet was there but all my money was gone, you know? And so there is a criminal element in Toontown. I don't know if it was the Beagle Boys. I don't know who to blame, but uh, if you're working there, make sure you bring your lock for the locker because you never know who's lurking. I feel like the person who's waving around all of their money deserves (laughs) a little bit of blame for that one. Oh, come on. You you say, oh, that guy's an idiot, not, oh, I'm going to steal his money. (laughs) Well... But Jeff, let me ask you this. So, you know, we talked about, you know, favorite shift, but when you get down to favorite break area, where did that fall for you? I don't know. Like, it was interesting, like your first question about the amenities of what a break area should have is kind of tough because it's like, to be honest, especially being a 20 something that was working at Disney. So we do not get paid, especially in the character department, do not get paid very well. So we don't have a whole lot of money. Is that so working over at Goofy's Kitchen, that was one thing that you would always get for a while. They might have stopped it at some point. But being attached to a kitchen or to a a restaurant, they would bring back pitchers of soda and hot chocolate. And well, for a while they were bringing leftovers, but then that didn't go well. But either way, you got like free food and free drinks. Man, that was one of the main reasons for wanting to work over there. But I did kind of like you've talked about, Adam, is that some of the the kind of like behind the scenes feel, I did always enjoy that. So like one of my favorites, even though it was not a very nice break area, is that if you ever worked in Frontierland, The break area in Frontierland was absolutely what Adam was talking about, where it's clearly this requisitioned office that is up kind of like right above one of those restaurants. So you're in this really weird sort of hallway, but it felt like you were in Frontierland. You would look out the window and the window was kind of obstructed so that people couldn't see you looking back at them. But you could look out and like peer out of the little corner and you could see people walking through the park and everything like yeah, that. Yeah, that was actually totally my choice too because Frontierland may not have been my favorite place to work, but that break room felt like a secret clubhouse. <laughs> it did, and yeah. Because cause it was literally, yeah, it's like to the right of the Golden Horseshoe, you would go up these stairs and again, most guests probably just thought it was a facade, right. you know, but because there were actually offices and there was a bathroom down the hall and there was even an outdoor covered dining area up there, you know, and that vending machine machines it was a fun little place to just kind of hang out in and again you knew you're like oh they can't see us but look what we're up here this is so fun but it was cramped i mean it was right. small i wouldn't it, it want to yeah. luxury it was like situation. it was like a neat place to work every now and again yeah but i wouldn't want to spend an entire summer in there that would have been yeah unpleasant. for me another one it was interesting like it had every element that you would think is what you want 
but it was more creepy than anything else. There were two Fantasyland break rooms. There was one that was just like a portable yeah. trailer, but then there was the one that was, I guess, like Fantasyland Frontierland that was the old Festival of Fools yep. break area. And that was always a woody shift, so it would be just you and your Jesse which was awkward, and it felt like the lights were never on, and it was this big, empty area with big windows, which was kind of creepy. That you know, It just looked out into the Festival of Fools area, basically, but there was nothing there. So, like I said, it had all the space and everything you wished for in a break room, without the camaraderie, without right. the fun, because there was nobody else there. It was just kind of a weird situation. I always just put on my headphones and my CD oh, player really? and would just like zone out for yeah. a little bit, because I was just like, this is weird. It was pretty cool, which I guess that's where star wars land is going now yeah uh, is where that is but like that was the neat thing is that yeah because it was behind the festival of fools like back when that show was happening it was their break area but it was completely surrounded by like trees and there was all pine needles on the ground and so it kind of felt like a cabin in the woods so i thought that was pretty cool that like here we are in the middle of disneyland but it feels like we're out in the woods but like you were saying adam that is one of the things that i enjoyed kind of again the opposite direction of amenities but there was something we called it the animal house which was the break area for fantasy land which to be honest was mostly like the princesses that was where they would end up breaking and then you would have especially if the princess had like a character with them or something like that but then the other one was when they first opened California Adventure, there was right over by the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire stage, this big room, and everybody kind of broke together. So there was definitely something in those two about like that camaraderie, where as opposed to like the Festival of Fools or even like the Sweetums break area, where it would just yeah. be the two of you the entire <laughs> time, there would be a dozen or more people in there. So it was it was fun. There was a TV, which was always like, what are we going to bring in to, like, to watch? And I did bring strong, bad emails one time, which was very oh. confusing for everyone who hadn't seen the Homestar Runner website. They were just like, what are we watching? Why is he wearing boxing gloves? Well, that was the thing, like the viewing, you know, because like we said, there were TVs in these break areas. And what I remember was always on, because remember, this is like early 2000s, yeah. late 90s. It was always judge shows. So oh, it was yeah. Judge Joe Brown, Judge Mills Lane, Judge Judy. You know, it's just like one yep. after the other. And it was Especially just like... Yeah, just nonstop. You were watching, I always called them like legal game shows is yeah. basically what they felt like. Yeah. And so that was always awkward. But then like, yeah, the people would bring in movies. So a lot of times it would be Disney movies to kind of watch and study your characters. But that was always a rookie move. I felt like people were like, oh, come on, rookie, what are you doing? It's true. And then that people would bring mainstream movies, though usually like the R-rated films were discouraged right. by the lead <laughs> unless everybody was on board. If everybody's like, no, we're good. And then they'd be like, all right, well, so, but the problem was you only got 30 minutes at right. a time to watch it. So you never got to see the full movie. You'd have to come back, rewind. Right. You know? Which was the funny thing is that, yeah, is that, so usually, so like that was the same thing, like a Goofy's Kitchen. I feel like there was a whole era where I was bringing movies each day or something like that. And so either you would just like hit play. Well, actually, that was the thing too. The A squad never wanted the TV on. As soon as they came in the break room, they would turn it off. The B squad, like, and to be honest, sometimes I wanted the TV on because I'm like, I kind of don't want to talk to these people. Like, let's just, <laughs> let's just put a, a movie on. But the interesting thing is, is that, yeah, watching a movie 30 minutes at a time can definitely change the movie. I, one time I brought in Groundhog Day with Bill Murray and watching that 30 minutes at a time gets really depressing. Like, I think we stopped it right after the part where he's suicidal. We're like, all right, let's go out on set. And it's like, oh, no. <laughs> 
Well, and the one thing I want to mention, too, is we were talking about California Adventure break rooms, and they were nice because they were so brand new, but also for that reason, they were very sterile, I felt yeah, like. they yeah. there, there was something to having stained carpets and the lived-in <laughs> smells of the Disneyland oh, break areas that just made man. you feel like everything's a little more lax here, it's a little more cool, but when like everything's pristine, it's like being at Grandma's house with the plastic on the couch or something, you know, you're just like, I don't know, we're going to mess this place up but one of the break areas i thought was kind of cool at california venture was ariel's grotto which was kind of neat it was basically the goofy's kitchen of california adventure it was a character dining experience but it was on the water of paradise bay you know that big bay in the middle of california venture so you would walk out of the break room if you wanted to and you realize you're just on a platform on the waterfront you know so it's just kind of a unique experience like jeff was saying where one felt like a cabin in the woods you know this one felt like oh I got a little lake house, you know, and you could walk around there. But one I wanted to ask you about, Jeff, because you brought up working in Genie earlier. An awkward situation for me was working at Aladdin's Oasis Uh. with Jasmine and Aladdin because costume characters were separate from regular employees at the park, regular cast members. Now the face characters were like the elite like they were the divas you know not, not an attitude but <laughs> but i'm just saying like not at goofy's kitchen you broke with the the face characters but but it was just weird to be on a break with aladdin and jasmine beautiful people with makeup on and i'm a sweaty guy who was just wearing a blue carpet for 30 minutes but i understood you know they didn't really want to socialize because they had the harder job they had to smile the whole time they were out there talking to guests so when they came back to a break room they were maybe a little less social and especially it's kind of awkward it's like well we're aladdin and jasmine and you're the other guy you know is that what always felt to me so whenever i worked at aladdin's oasis i was like again this is gonna be weird it's just a little break room and i don't know how it's gonna go over today i mean they were nice but it wasn't like hey we're best friends now wow then we had very different experiences (laughs) i loved aladdin and jasmine's because like i knew a lot of them and it is that one thing that should be mentioned. It is that interesting thing about being, as we call them, a face character. So usually princesses and then Aladdin are pretty much the only ones. Peter Pan every now and again, but it's really hard to find a guy that looks like Peter Pan that's that short. So we didn't have a lot of Peter Pans. Mad Hatter, we had a lot of Mad Hatters. That was a very popular male character. But for the most part, you get a lot of princesses. And don't get me wrong, one, they are being paid for... Not only their performance, but even more so what they look like. So they did get paid better than we did. So that already created a little bit of a thing. And you find a 19, 20-year-old and you say, hey, you are so beautiful, we're going to pay you for being beautiful. It's kind of hard not to let that go to your head. Like, let's be honest. Like, that's, that's that's a tough thing. But there were some, like, again, for me, especially the Aladdins and Jasmines that were just so delightful. One of our friends that went to university high school with us, he was in Aladdin for a while. Yeah, hoping to get him on the show one of these days. I've reached out. So he's got a music career now. So we'll see if he has time for that. So the interesting thing about that shift, I thought, was that there was kind of two, because back in the early 2000s, there was that show called Aladdin's Oasis, which was like story time with Jasmine and Aladdin. And so they would go out and do essentially a show. And then after the show, they would go out in front and like sign autographs and stuff like that. So if you were there on a show day as the genie, sometimes you would just be walking around Adventureland while Aladdin and Jasmine were doing their show. So that was a little bit weird. 
But if the show ever got canceled for some reason or if it ever went down, they would just do meet and greets all day and then you would be out there. And it was very interesting because face characters would do 45-minute sets and then a 15-minute break. And so they would kind of overlap it. So they would have one do 45 minutes and then the other do 45 minutes and there would be like a 30-minute overlap. And so for me, I love that so much. Don't tell any of my lead. Well, now I can't get in trouble for it anymore, right? Uh, I love that so much. I would go out with Jasmine, do her whole 45-minute set with her, and then stick around so I could be with just me and Aladdin for the last 15 minutes. So I would do our sets with 20-minute breaks. Because, one, I love that genie costume. I literally, I think I did an hour and a half set one time because I could just do that all day, which goes against all of that stuff I was saying before about the health concerns, uh, which is why the, the leads hated when I did that. But, yeah, just being able to play off the two of them and just, I don't know, for me there is something so much fun about the Aladdin and genie dynamic where we were just kind of like buddies so we would just be messing around and doing all that sort of stuff like that not messing around like getting in trouble but just like we're two buds like i had a lot of fun doing that now the other amenity that was in these break rooms more of a necessity really were the phones because there were things that were going on throughout the park throughout the day that you had to have a phone for to communicate between the schedulers, between the different break rooms. So one thing that happened pretty regularly was getting called to another area midday. Like usually someone had called in sick, so they needed to leave Town Square for Toontown or California Adventure or whatever. Like we're down a goofy, we need you to go over there. So usually you would finish out your shift until lunchtime and then travel over to your new location for the second half of the day unless again it was like a real emergency a high traffic area but i always liked that because i felt like a hero saving the day when i got switched to my shift They're like oh yeah call adam he'll take care of it and it was just a nice change of pace for the day again sometimes you get uh, uh again as a rookie you're getting the same shift over and over again so if you're gonna get switched out and just break up the monotony a little bit that's kind of neat um and the other part of it, too, I don't know, Jeff, did you get called out very often in your shifts? Was that a, a regular experience for you? It's kind of that rookie thing is that as a rookie, a lot of times you get the extra shift that is expendable. Like, for example, one of our friends, Joe, he would always pick that early entry shift because he loved it. It was four hours long, but it was the most expendable shift in the park. So he would get called a lot of times. For me, the only time that it happened is like we've talked about before, at least that first summer that I was working there, it felt like every time I got scheduled for anything other than the Beast, I would get called and say like, hey, Jeff, our Beast called in sick. You got to go do it. <laughs> oh, I thought I was out and then you dragged me back in. <laughs> And, you know, sometimes it would be not just for another shift, but for a, a special event. Like, I know I got called in one time, I mentioned on our preview episode, to help out with a snafu for a Magic Music Days group. So that was one time where Goofy had to go over and smooth things over. One time I got called in to do a parade. And we're going to save that for our special events episode. But that was a real unique experience because that is not a crossover. Was that a parade or a cavalcade? No, it was, it was it was a real parade. Like it was, okay. yeah. So I'll There's tell you that story. We'll talk about that too. Yeah. But the other thing too, and Jeff alluded to this in our bonus episode with Nikki, where he told the infamous story of trading a shift with me and what I should have been doing is the other benefit of the break room having a phone was that you could look at the scheduling book and 
if you needed to trade a shift, that was the time you could call around to the different break rooms and try to find this person. Hey, is Andy there? I want to see if he wants to trade a shift with me. You know, the de- people always, hey, Adam's on the phone for you. I can just imagine, like, their look <laughs> on their face. Oh, no. Yeah, no, I really, I like my shift, man. Sorry. You know, or look, I'll take this other one for you, too. You know, so you would always negotiate. You'd really try to sweeten the deal for them. So that was, that was kind of a little wheel and a deal it on the phones during your break was another activity. But then you do get a longer break where you had a little bit more freedom and that was lunchtime. So Jeff, I'm curious to hear from you what your lunch situation was. Cause I'll just mention for me, if I remember most often, you know, I, I worked a lot of Toontown. So it felt like if you were working Toontown or Fantasyland, you would usually go to Village Haas, which was a little walk-up window at the back of the restaurant, which is in Fantasyland over by the Casey Jr. And it's right there. Uh, it's actually themed after Pinocchio. It got that old world feel. But that was what was so funny. It was like a little walk-up drive through window in this back corridor that you would go in and order your food. And Jeff, am I correct? Did we get like 10 to 15% off the price of the food as employees? Was that part of the deal? Uh, I don't know about that, but I know like it was different pricing. It, well, that was the thing about Village House. If you ask me, Village House was the most expensive of all the, the places that we could eat. Because you, you could, I mean, if you went out onto stage, some people would they'd go out and like just order from a restaurant like the the guests do Uh, and then yeah you would get a discount on that but yeah the assumption is is that buying it from the employee side would be less expensive yeah it it was like your standard is like burgers and fries and chicken figures but they have salads and things my favorite place to get lunch was the town square cafeteria basically it was it was just a nice employee cafeteria you could walk in and they had more than just the standard burgers and fries like they had a vast menu they had specials depending on the day of the week so it was just it was a nice to have like a place where you could get healthy food even though we were you know 19 20 year old we could live off the vending machine in toontown where you could get a burrito or like a polish sausage sandwich you put in the microwave you know but that was pretty nasty yet there were a lot of fun conversations to be had in that break area you know but overall it was like ah you know i I got to take a walk. I got to find something. Well, and that break area always smelled like whatever somebody had put in the microwave before you. popcorn. Oh. Somebody got popcorn. You're like, oh. no. <laughs> well, they always burn it. It was just, oh, that break area. I feel like that's where we cross over with anybody's like corporate break area. <laughs> it's like, it's the same thing. You're going to deal with those smells and all that. Oh, but true. Lunching at Goofy's yeah, Kitchen, Jeff, I remember you, you mentioned that, that I got to do it once or twice where literally like, the, you know, you work the early shift, the restaurant's closed, they'll let you go fill up a plate. But that stopped pretty quickly after I worked there. I don't remember if that ever happened. Oh, you didn't do that? I did get to do that. Wow. Yeah, that would have been a very... Because usually they would go from breakfast to lunch during that shift. And rather than throw all the food away, they would bring it back to the break area. But then some other employees complained about it. And then I think it was a health code violation. So they ended up throwing that in the garbage instead. Yeah, but the other option was that because Goofy's Kitchen is part of the Disneyland Hotel, there was actually a back area that was like at the back end of the hotel kitchen where you could order off their dining menu, you know, I guess their room service menu. So I would actually go over there on my breaks and order food. And that was always a pretty good deal, too, because, again, you get like fish tacos or, you know, like they would have like some pretty decent menu items. So I, I was always a fan of that. 
Did you do that pretty often, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, obviously you were working there a lot. But yeah, did you well, bring your lunch. Well, again, same thing. Went through different phases because for me, being on the thrifty side, like I never once went to Village House because if you ask me, I think Village House was like six bucks for a burger and fries, and I was like, dude, I don't really know that I get paid six dollars to work here, so I'm not giving <laughs> you six dollars. For some reason, I had in my mind that if you're gonna make me eat food here. If you're not going to give it to me for free, it should be a great deal. So the hotel, I would even figure out how if I was working somewhere else, I would calculate how long would it take me to walk all the way to the Disneyland Hotel from Toontown or whatever. I'd walk all the way over there, grab food and head all the way back because for a while there, and I think they, they did end up raising the prices when they changed vendors and stuff like that. I remember specifically in 2002 or 2001 or whatever it was. A dollar and 50 cents got you a half a sandwich and fries. Like, there you go. And so for, for a long time, every single day I would eat that. Once they raised prices, I went back to my old cup of noodles, and then it was cup of noodles every day. <laughs> well, and now, you know, also California Adventure, to my recollection, did not have a cast member dining area. So you would literally have to walk out to one of the restaurants in the park and pick something up, which wasn't bad. I mean, they had some pretty good selection, you know, among the restaurants there. But the place I always wanted to eat at was the Chinese food restaurant at the Pacific Bay, like, wharf oh. area. But it was literally never opened. Like, I think maybe <laughs> the first month they tried to serve food there. And then I never saw anybody working there after that, whether I went just as a guest or as an employee. It was always a no man's land. It was totally wasted space. There was nobody walking around there and there was no food to be had so that always frustrated me because i'm a big chinese food guy and i was like i can't get an egg roll over here come right. on well the highlight because they did open and i'm trying to remember where it was they did open a a dining area i mean obviously they have one now but they opened one relatively quickly at california adventure but it was it was like a really big eating area giant ceilings and stuff like that. I'm kind of picturing it in my mind. But the highlight was, especially when California Adventure first opened, is that the Mission Tortilla Factory would be making tortillas as demonstrations all day. So if you just went up there and said like, hey man, like, got any tortillas left? And they would give you like a thing <laughs> of like 50 little flour tortillas. And so we would just bring that into the break area and everyone would just be eating tortillas for the rest of the day. Maybe you'd go into the kitchen thing and get like some butter or something like that and smear some butter on the on the tortillas. But... Hey buddy, could I bum a tortilla off you, man? Well, because if you took, <laughs> and I think they still do that if that's still there today, is that as you take the tour, that would be the end of the tour is they would give you one right. tortilla. So you could yeah. do that because then at some point they stopped giving them out for free. So then it would just be like, hey, I'll just take the tour like three times and I'll get three tortillas. and then Thrifty Jeff. Oh, wait, I was not the only one. Let's be honest here. So now the other eventuality that you would encounter, because believe it or not, it does rain in California. <laughs> so when that happened... the the costume characters had to find places to hide because you couldn't let the water soak into your outfit. I mean, you could, even if it was just misting, you couldn't be wandering around out there. It was going to be a problem. So if you were working in town square, 
usually you went to the lobby of the Mr. Lincoln, because I was basically right next to where you would walk out anyway. So you would just go in there and hang out in the lobby, and the guests, if they were lucky enough to catch sight of you as they were walking in the park, like, that's the other thing. It feels like the hosts kind of had to bring people in sometimes to be like, hey, Mickey and Goofy are in here. Come say hi to Pluto, you know, because otherwise they're just going to walk right past you. But it was nice because if you think about it, like, on a rainy day, the park is not that crowded. So when people came in to see you, you did, like Jeff was always such a big fan of, really get to create that moment with them because you weren't in such a rush. And Jeff, if you were in Toontown and it rained, where would you go? Usually we would go, as Goofy, we would go into Mickey's house and just kind of wander that was weird but it was fun like that, that was like a place you could play around in you know you could you know just sit down watch his tv you could pretend you know sit on his phone go in his garden area i mean you couldn't really go in the garden area but you're in that space and so i always liked going to mickey's house because it was just kind of the guests were not expecting you so they turn a corner and it's like oh it's Goofy, true. it was what are you doing here hi you know because you know the whole point of mickey's house for most people is at the very end you get to meet mickey you're right. guaranteed a moment with Mickey, but here is like an extra bonus, and you were a part of that. So I always felt like that was a, a nice perk to be a part of, you know, for the for the guests that were braving the rain. Right. Although the thing that should be mentioned too is that not many guests for Disneyland is about thirty thousand. So twenty four thousand yeah. <laughs> people is basically why did we open up the doors? Like I don't think they ever get that low. So. I think the biggest thing is, too, is that they would put us in low traffic areas, which made sense. You don't want to put a character because then it's, it's going to really clog things up. So, yeah, like Mr. Lincoln, like, let's be honest, how many people are going into the lobby of Mr. Lincoln in the first place? So I've never even seen it. Exactly, I've only heard of it. Exactly. Yeah. Mickey's house, not that that's a low traffic area, but that was and actually that was always a concern is that. It was supposed to be a flow. You're supposed to be walking through. And if all of a sudden Goofy's there stopping up the works, like, yeah, that did make it kind of tough. So they would try and maneuver you so that it wouldn't stop things up. For me, I I remember rainy day wise, which I felt really bad is I had one. Actually, it was really interesting. One of the the gals that I worked with, she was doing Jesse. I was doing Woody. Jesse was kind of a Pluto height character and she was hearing impaired. So she actually had a hearing aid and she would read lips and she was a really, really talented character because it kind of like You know, she had to kind of rely on her other senses because now all of a sudden her scene is impaired because of the costume and her hearing is already naturally impaired. So I did kind of feel bad because then she kind of had to rely on me where I would just kind of communicate, hey, we're going to go over here. And then she would follow Woody. So here it is a rainy day and they put us in this little tunnel. If you know Disneyland well, there's this little tunnel that goes from that Magic Music Day stage into Frontierland. They had a standing in that tunnel right there, which there would be no one because no one looks over there. Like here's Woody and Jesse just standing there all by themselves. But for some reason it had stopped raining, but we were still on the rainy day schedule. So they still had us in that tunnel. And one of my friends, David, was playing Buzz Lightyear in Tomorrowland. And for one reason, they would keep those three separate just because it was separate experiences by meeting all three of them and blah, 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 blah. Buzz was more themed for Tomorrowland and we were more themed for Frontierland. But in this one occasion, I'm in this tunnel and I look over and I can see Tomorrowland and there's Buzz Lightyear standing there. And I'm like, oh. So I call up my friend David and I say like, hey man, next set, 
what if you just walk a little bit further, like towards the castle, and we walk a little bit further towards the castle, then we would all be together. And it could be Buzz, Woody, and Jesse all together at the same time. Awesome, man. That sounds great. So I wrote my Jesse in because she's like, oh, okay, I guess we're going this way. So all three of us are standing there in front of the castle, which for me was a magic moment. For my lead, a little bit less so. She was not <laughs> pleased that I had disobeyed orders or, or whatever, but... Um, yeah, that was my highlight of rainy day schedules. There you go. Take advantage of it. Yeah. So on the flip side, the question I think we get most often, and it was asked by Eric, who drew us that awesome picture. He was curious to know if there were any tricks for beating the heat in costume. And the thing is, I think a lot of people imagine they're like, oh, yeah, don't you have like ice packs you put around your neck? Or don't you have like a fan in your head? And that's just not the case. Nothing so fancy as that. So, Jeff, the real question is, can you think, was there a trick for beating the heat? Oh, absolutely. It's it's movement. Like, it would break my heart to see rookies that, especially if they were hot, they would just stand still. Like, somehow that's, I don't know, I mean, they're just exhausted. I don't know what it was. But the reality is, overheating or letting the heat affect you is all about airflow. And if you're getting nothing but the hot air coming up from you sweating and from your you know chest area and stuff like that, then that's what's going to be so hot because you're breathing that air in. But on the other hand, where you see out of is your primary fresh air source. So if you're moving, then you've got fresh air flowing in. And, and so that was always that thing, you know, with Goofy and with the Beast and with the Genie especially, is that as you're moving, the hot air is going out and the, the cool air is going in. So that was always the secret, so to speak. Yeah, that really is all you could do, because most of the time, if you're in an area that happens to have trees, you might try to find a spot where you could get a little bit of shade, but it's just not going to do you much good. And I remember people lobbying at one point, can we put like this ice vest on or something? You know, but that was like literally like another OSHA thing. It's like, no, that's not healthy for your body to be that hot and then have something that cold. I don't know. I, I, I remember some discussion about that. So it was just never an option. So you just learned to do deal with it and bottom line jeff i think you alluded to this i feel like after my first summer in costume you almost don't sweat as much or you just don't notice it as much like your body adjusts and it's like this is a normal part of your life now so this is what we have to deal with the fascinating thing for me was the genie is that because of all of the costumes the way that the genie costume works it was really interesting because your head was fashioned where the chin area was the mesh screen that you would see out of but his chin is huge so there was this huge big again not only an air source but also where the hot air is going out and your chest piece was basically like form fitting like it was this it, it was a very thick pad but it was right up against your chest so there wasn't even an opportunity for the heat to ex- escape it was just all kind of compressed in there so for me literally i would do an hour and a half set and be ready for more because the heat just wouldn't be affecting me. Now, once I took it off, my shirt would be soaked, and like I would have soaked into the pad, which they didn't appreciate <laughs> that either. Because for me, like the, the people that would talk about, oh, I gotta find a shady spot to stand in. Now, okay, if it's 95 degrees, that's a valid point. But for the most part, it's like, no way, dude, because standing still is a fool's game. Like I would rather be running around and doing that sort of stuff like that because the heat's not even gonna affect me if I'm moving. Yeah, and I, I would just say for me, like the most difficult costume with the heat 
was Woody, huh. only because, again, with my aversion to sweaty gloves, <laughs> half of the glove is plastic, so he has that plasticky feel for the hands, like plastic rubber, and then the other half is the cloth that has a little piece of elastic at the top, so just, just above your elbow kind of sticks there, and so because of the heat and the sweat and everything that would gather in the plasticky part of the hand, like it just made everything extra wet all the time so that was where i felt the heat you know i I didn't really notice it in the body the body of woody's pretty airy and easy to deal with but just the gloves themselves that's where i would get the hottest the secret was they would give you these long white gloves it seems counterintuitive but what you needed to do is you need to put the white gloves underneath your character gloves so those could get sweaty and you just toss them out and you replace them but if you're me, I have to put like two layers on and it still doesn't do any good. I'm just a sweaty, sweaty man. But by the end, you're sweaty, you're kind of tired, but you had a great day, you enjoyed yourself. So it's the end of the shift. And when your shift was over, you had to return to the headroom and turn in your costume pieces. So whether it was Toontown or whether it was the the Town Square headroom, there were different baskets for your sweaty underclothes. Then you had pieces of actual costumes, you know, put your shoes here, put your shirt here. But then there was also a whole procedure where you had to wipe out your head with alcohol to get all the germs off, essentially, for the next person to use. And Jeff kind of alluded to this last episode where it's just like, at first it might seem kind of overwhelming you got to learn all the different chemicals you're allowed to use on this and not on there but after a while it's just like up oh, here we go again there's that alcohol smell to <laughs> close off my day now one of the other things that i thought was interesting if you work toontown in an evening shift you would technically get off early because of the fireworks shows yeah. but if you missed the window to rush to your car before they started firing off the fireworks, you were stuck waiting until the show was over. So you had to like rush back and get your costume off and get ready to go because otherwise you were not going to make it out. Which and, and that was the interesting because most character shifts are day shifts because thankfully they've learned well enough that a character who can barely see walking around in the dark is not a good idea. Uh, <laughs> plus... Like, the kids have gone home if it's 8, 9 o'clock at night. So having Goofy out there, it's just asking for him to get beat up by teenagers. But it would be that other thing. is that, So with the shifts ending, uh, it wasn't just Toontown. Like, I remember for myself, especially because I parked back, again, at the main structure. So I would have to walk all the way through the park to exit through Toontown. So if I miss that window... And one time there was, there's where the train goes over through Fantasyland. There's this tunnel or bridge or whatever that you have to go under to go where the train goes. And that was the cutoff point. So I remember going under that tunnel and the security guard was there and was like, sorry, man, you missed it. Like the fireworks are about to start. So I had to stand in that tunnel for like the 20 minutes or whatever as the fireworks show was going on. And Nikki mentioned this when we interviewed her. It was kind of fun if you were in like Town Square or something and it was either the holiday parade or whatever it was that you would be able to sit down in the back and watch the fireworks go off with all your friends if it was like a cool summer night or just a little breeze out there. So it was kind of a unique perspective to have back behind. And I think overall we're going to get into this on a later episode like talking about the bonding and the, the break room relationships you build because it was a very social atmosphere again you had those 30 minutes to kind of hang out and because we're such a group of young people there was always some activity going on after a shift so you know you had plenty of time to make plans so you might be bowling you might be going 
to a house party somewhere, you know, you might actually be choosing to go into the park and make use of all the perks of being an employee. So it was like end of shift. It was just like the beginning of your next adventure, which I always thought was kind of fun. It was like, this day is over. I was having fun. Now I get to keep having fun as long as I choose to, as long as I could last with my young energy. Did you do much of that, Jeff? Did you always find something to do after a shift or did you just rush home? No, never. Uh, Well, (laughs) because it's that thing too that is, is kind of funny. And some of it is that veteran versus rookie thing. You know, like 20 year olds view jobs one way. 30-year-olds view jobs a different way. Yeah, 20-year-olds view view jobs one way and 30-year-olds view jobs another way. And it's that one thing that it's kind of like the first time that you see the fireworks show from backstage is is pretty special. The second time you see it is pretty special. The third time, fourth time, fifth time, seventh time, twelfth time, fiftieth time. At some point, it's kind of like it becomes part of the the, the the humdrum, I guess. And so it's the same thing. There's going to be a party on a Friday night with a bunch of 20-year-olds. That's awesome. But you're 25, 26, 30, 35. Like all of a sudden, yeah, that that connection becomes a little bit less. And some, the, the, the tough part is too for me is that when I had that 6.15 to 2.45 shift, nobody's done at 2.45. And when you're 20, most parties don't start until 9 p.m. And just tell people like, well, I got to be home to go to sleep by 1030. It's like, well, there goes that. For me, it wasn't really until I started doing shows that I kind of got involved with that younger crowd. Even though I wasn't older, I was kind of with that older crowd a lot. Mm -hmm, Right. Yeah, definitely a Goofy's Kitchen for sure. Well... There you have it. A day in the life of a costume character at Disneyland. Uh, We had so much to talk about, but can you believe this is only episode three? We have Uh way more to get into because we've touched on it throughout these first few episodes. What really the core of our job was inhabiting these animated characters that mean so much to so many people. So next episode for episode four, we are going to be getting into our character philosophy. This is where you're going to hear all of the different characters we had the opportunity to play. Maybe some of them only once or twice. Maybe some of them for years at a time. And we're going to let you know what were our favorite ways to bring the character to life. What were some of our favorite bits? What were some of the the crazier moments we had with guests on set? So it's going to be a real fun episode. Something to look forward to. In the meantime, we still want some more of your stories. Be sure to send us some goof mail at twogoofspodcast at gmail.com or find Find us online and all the social media platforms. We're very active on Twitter, especially, and we'll maybe even answer a few of your questions off the air there if you're curious. But yeah, just tell your friends because more and more we're hearing people are getting turned on to the show and we're glad that they're enjoying it. Something unique out there that hopefully you feel that everybody would like to enjoy on some level. So until next time, we'll bye.